Today's scripture reading comes from Galatians 2, 17 to 21. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then the servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I build what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You may be seated. All right, as you're seated today, let me pray. Father, we thank you for this glorious text of truth, for the scriptures that you inspired to be written, that we might know who you are, that we might know how to live in light of who you are, and really, Lord, even as we look at this today, that we might know who we are in you. So today, Lord, we ask you that you would open our eyes to see you more clearly and that we would open our ears, that you would open our ears to to help us, God, to hear you more clearly. That you would open our hearts to believe in the fullness of what you have for us and that we would believe and have believing hearts full of faith to trust that you love us as you've revealed to us. To trust that what you have done in our lives thus far and what you've promised to do, Lord, you'll bring to pass. Help us to trust in the fullness of your work in our life in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a, a story from when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. Now, I said that uh, we share an office. Some of you know this. There's a few of us that share a space. And I said that to Fred, who's the pastor of the Christ City Kitsilano congregation. And I said that to him. I said, you know, way back when Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of the UK. And he looked at me and said, hey, that wasn't that long ago. And I said, that's because you're old. And then I said, back when... Margaret Thatcher was the Prime Minister of the UK. She was visiting this old folks' home, and uh, she was apparently going from room to room, visiting some of the seniors that had been there for a very long time. And one lady she was shaking hands with was seated in a wheelchair and actually had really... She showed no signs of knowing that she was shaking hands with a world-famous politician. She was shaking hands with her, and Margaret Thatcher leaned into her. She shook her hand, and she said, "'Do you know who I am?' And the lady sitting in the wheelchair just looked at her straight in the face and she smiles and says, no, dear, but I should ask the nurse if I were you. She usually knows. (laughs) Here's the point. Sometimes we forget who we really are. Sometimes we forget who we really are. This text from Galatians is a conversation between Paul and Peter that started back in verse 14 that looked at verses 15 and 16 like last week. And then this morning we'll look at verses 17 through through 21, which is the end of the conversation. It's a conversation between Paul and Peter where Paul is trying to help his friend Peter to remember who he truly is in Christ. Peter has forgotten who he is in Christ, and he's started to behave in a different kind of way. He's trying to teach, I think, as well as he writes in this letter. He uses this example of what happened in Antioch between him and his friend Peter, and he's recounting the story 
to the Galatians in this letter to the Galatian churches that he might help them to understand what it means to live out of their identity in Christ. And I thank God the fact, or for the fact that it's in the scriptures 2,000 years later. We can sit here and we can read this story about how Peter started to err in his way and how Paul graciously comes alongside and says, you forgot who you are in Christ. Let's right the ship and come back to the direction and head in the direction that we're supposed to be going. This text is good for all of us because, like Peter, there are times where we forget who we really are. And what we do is we return or turn to our old comforts and our old identities. We forget who we are in Christ. And when we do that, we have a tendency to step back into old patterns. Old sin, just like Peter. We need Paul to come along tell us that we're not living in step with the truth of the gospel. So we just need a gentle correction occasionally to remember who we are, move back in line and live in truth and in step with the truth of the gospel. So when we forget who we are in Christ, we will do things like Peter. Peter, for instance, here in the text, a few weeks ago we saw this, he forgot who he was in Christ and he forgot what, what Jesus had accomplished for him and he started ethnic separation again. He would only eat at the table with the fellow Jewish believers. He separated himself away. See, we forget who we are and we fall back into old patterns. We fall back into patterns of lust. We fall back into patterns of pride. We fall back into patterns of greed. We fall back into patterns of things like self-pity. Because the thing is, greed and pride... And lust and self-pity all have ways of making us feel more comfortable. And if we forget our identity in Christ, we can turn to our thing. And you can fill in the blank with what your thing, your besetting sin, the things that you still struggle with in an ongoing way where you're going, man, I can't believe I did that again. I can't believe I was that arrogant again. I just, I felt so good about myself telling others how great I am. I can't believe I did that again. One pastor I know, he, he was talking about how he says, you know, people in your church, when they backslide, they probably, you know, they might watch a movie with some unsavory content that they shouldn't have watched, and they're not careful about what they're taking in, and they need to repent. He's like, I work with ex-gang members. It's like, when people in my church backslide, they might end up in jail or dead. It's like, if they have a bad weekend, they're not going to watch a film that they shouldn't have watched. They're not going to, you know, whatever it is that you want to pick. They're not going to do that. They're going to potentially go out on a drive-by because that's their old identity and their old life. See, if we forget who we are in Christ, we turn to our old identities and the things that we look at. So some of you who are single, you might seek the comfort of a sexual encounter, being desired by someone. Some of you who, who have history, not unlike mine, might decide that the comfort you really need is just to get high or drunk. Because, oh my gosh, all the world's problems just wash away. Some of us might cut corners in our work, try and make a quick buck, because we think if we just get ourselves financially secure, we're going to feel more comfortable and safe and sound and solid and taken care of. And so we'll cut some corners because that'll add to the bottom line. And if we add to the bottom line, we'll probably feel better about our lives. And then some of us, like Peter, might only share 
the dinner table with people who have the same color of skin. That's because we all have past identities. And those of us who follow Jesus have new identities. And we need to be aware of that and be reminded to live in and through and live out of our new identity instead of reverting back to the old. See, memory loss happens to all of us. It's not just a reality at an old folks' home in the UK. This text is dealing with memory loss of our new identity in Christ. So last week we looked at verses 15 and 16. And I said that we are saved by faith in the faithfulness of Jesus. Look at this, and we looked at it in a different translation. We looked at it in the New English translation. Verses 15 and 16 said, We are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that no one is justified by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. And we have come to believe in Christ Jesus so that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul was saying, Peter, my friend, yes, we used to trust in our flesh. We used to trust in our works of the law. We used to trust in our birthright as Jewish people. We used to trust in the fact that we were from the lineage of Abraham, father of faith. We used to trust in that. But all oh, we've met Jesus. We've come to see that we're not saved through those means, but that we are saved by faith or trust in the faithfulness of Christ. What he has accomplished is actually what has brought us to salvation. So last week I said the word justification. It's a legal term from the law courts. And so I said the opposite of justification is condemnation or being found guilty. That's the opposite of it. It's a legal term that is used. So justification by faith is when God, who is the righteous and just judge, freely declares that our sin can be pardoned and that we can have a right standing before him by our faith in Jesus. That's what we talked about last week. Justification is not less than that. But as I alluded to last week, it's more. The right standing or a status change is the entry point into our union with Christ. It's the entry point into our relationship with God. Our justification is not merely a declaration of a right standing before God. It is an invitation to our participation in the life of Christ. It's a participation in Christ. It comes down to our relationship with him. It's not merely a judicial declaration that we can be forgiven, though it is that, and it's not less than that. It's just more than that, and it brings us into a right relationship with God. And the text this week is going to conclude this part of the conversation with Peter, but it's going to conclude it by talking about our union with Christ. So we're going to look at it in two ways. We're going to look at it like this. Our identity that's torn down, our old identity that's torn down, and our new identity that takes hold. Old identity torn down, new identity takes hold. Look at this in verse 17 and 18. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? He says, certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Do you see this in verse 17? Just keep it on the screen. Look at this again. If our, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Now, remember, we're listening to a conversation between two Jewish guys. So Paul, the Jewish guy, says to Peter, the Jewish guy, in verse 15, we saw last week, he says, 
we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. What does he mean when he says sinners? It's sinners in quotation marks. We ourselves are Jews. We are the people of God who were born into the family of God. Everybody else is categorically sinner. That's what he's saying. Same thing he's saying in 17. If in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, meaning we left our old identity as people who were born into the family of God, as Jewish people, and we left that and we technically categorically became sinners. That's what he's saying. Now we're only hearing half of the conversation. Remember, Paul's writing a letter, but he's writing this with a point. The point is, there had been an accusation made against him that his preaching of our freedom in Christ was actually leading people into sin, thereby there were people who were saying that Jesus was a servant to sin. The reason they were saying that is because they were giving up their old Jewish identity and they were walking in the freedom that they had in Christ. There's an accusation being made. Paul's responding to it by explaining something that he told to Peter. You guys all right? You with me? That's not reassuring. (laughs) I'll trust you. I'm going to keep going. The accusation is that he is preaching freedom in Christ and causing people to sin because they are foregoing works of the law. He's he's trying to clean that up. He's trying to explain this. Here it is. It is not sinful to be considered sinner in the sense that it's used in verse 15 and verse 17. Because in that sense, it just means that you've truly taken hold of your freedom in Christ. That's what it's saying. It's saying that it's not sin to stop depending on your good works to save you. What it's saying is that Christ is not the agent of sin, that Christ is the agent of freedom. We're going to see more of that later. We'll come back to this. Look at verses 17 and 18 again. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So Paul knows that when he met Jesus, his life was so radically transformed that it tore apart his old identity. Remember last week, we we brought Jake up on here on the stage and we gave him a whole bunch of books and we said that this is like Paul who said that in Philippians 3, he says he gives his whole spiritual resume and he said that his hands were full of all of his successes, all of his accolades, all of his faithfulness, his hands were full. And he said all those things that he'd accomplished, they were counted as rubbish in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. He said that his hands were too full, so to speak, to take hold of Christ by faith. The empty hands of faith. He said, oh, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, the good faithful tribe that never ducked out on God. A Hebrew of Hebrews. I learned the language, he says. He goes into all of this. He says, as to the law, I was a Pharisee. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He said, under, as to zeal, he says he was a persecutor of the church. Meaning he was so zealous for God that he would persecute anybody who seemed to be going against what he was saying. So anyone who was a quote-unquote sinner preaching that you could be saved by freedom in Christ receive freedom in Christ and forego all those works that Paul had said he heaped up, 
He was being accused of something that he wasn't doing. Paul had to empty his hands of all of his accolades before he could take hold of Christ, the empty hands of faith. Uh, Consider another picture. Uh, I heard another pastor use this. Meaning that if you don't like it, you can blame it on him. (laughs) He said that the law in the Old Testament was like God laying tracks for a train. And then he laid out the tracks so that we knew how to walk, how to live, and how to rightly obey God to be in right relationship with him. And he laid out those tracks, and here's what he said. Our relationship with God is mediated by grace. And the empowerment of the Holy Spirit is like the engine that is pulling the train along the tracks that were laid out so that we would live obediently. And he says that our car, the train car that we're in, is hitched to God by faith. So the coupling... The linkage is faith. That we're hooked to God and that he is empowering us along the railway that we might understand the end to which he has called us. The coupling or the link between our car and the engine was faith. But hear this, so that in the Old Testament, just like in the New Testament, salvation was actually by grace through faith, along the track of obedience. You with me? Some of you look like either you don't know the Old Testament or you don't know what a train is. (laughs) Stay with me. In the Old Testament, salvation was never described as salvation by works. Salvation by works was a legalistic mutation of the good news that God had originally revealed in the covenants that he made with his people. But this way of salvation, it's so desperately uncomplimentary to the human condition, to the human ego, because God, therefore, is the engine driving the whole thing. So it's that he is the one saving us. So we're not saved by any of our effort on our own. That's very unpopular when you want to earn something. We talked about the ancient Jews last week. And how some of them had this legalistic mutation where we we use the parable out of Luke 18, where the Pharisee says, I thank God that I'm not like him. And we have those kind of people. We have the Jesus plus people that say, we'll take Jesus plus a bunch of works of the law. And that's how we'll be saved. It's Jesus plus we'll top up what is necessary. It's Jesus. He gets us part of the way there. But then the works of the law that we do, that's what actually saves us. And then we talked about the secular version of that, whereby we set the bar, and then we determine if we're over the bar or under the bar. Are we good enough or not? Do we measure up? They're actually all the same mutation of the original grace that God has given. They basically all do the same thing in different forms because they're all facing the same universal problem of lostness. They try to close the gap between a holy God and a broken person through some form of self-justification. And that's what Paul's writing against. Because like I said last week, self-justification is the default human response to the universal problem of realizing that you're lost. We're lost? Let's fix that. There's a gap between me and God. What do I need to do? That's the default response. So here's what God's people did with the gift that they gave him, that he gave them. He laid out a track whereby they would know how to live by obedience, but that it wasn't done in their own strength, that the driving force behind that 
was God as the engine of the train, bringing them along the track of obedience, whereby they take hold of God by faith, and he brings them to the place that he calls them in according to his will. What they did is they took that railway and they picked it up. Rails, ties, nails. They picked the whole thing up and they leaned it on the door of heaven like a ladder. And they said, now we'll climb it. Thank you very much. They took what he gave them by grace and turned it into a mutated system of works. They said, we don't want to go along behind him. We'll earn our way up. And they changed the system. This is the ladder that Jesus tore down when he died on the cross, atoning for all of our sin. And this is the ladder he tore down when he walked out of the tomb, resurrected to new life. This is what Paul says he tore down. He tore down the misuse of the law. It's not Jesus plus anything. Verse 18 again, look at it. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. So here it is. You transgress the law of God when you set up a ladder to heaven where you think you can demonstrate your deservedness of your salvation. That's what he's getting at. Christ City, the, the gospel comes along, kicks out that ladder every time. That's beautiful. Haven't you ever wanted to kick out a ladder for somebody who's climbed up to the top? <laughs> a few of us went for breakfast this week and we went over to the White Spot at Oak Ridge. Right? Shout out White Spot. Love White Spot. Driving through the parkade after we finished breakfast and there's, there's this maintenance worker who's set up a ladder and he's working like 20 feet up in the air on this ladder. He set it up right in the lane where you're driving in the underground at Oak Ridge Mall and he's got like one cone. I was like, fellas, should I hit that? You know, people who don't know me as well are like, no! You seem like the guy who would do that. And I totally would. I would love to do that. Because it would be funny. Like, that's objectively good humor. You're watching a film, and somebody is up on a ladder, and someone comes along and kicks it out. That's funny. Every time. I'm Sorry. The gospel kicks out the ladder of your works every single time. So the connection between verses 17 and 18 is this. When Christ leads us to trust him for justification, instead of trusting our own ladder climbing efforts, he's not an agent of sin. What really makes, makes a person a transgressor is not the rejection of the law, but seeking to rebuild that horrible mutation of the law of God that turns it from a railroad track of grace to a ladder of works. The transgression against God is to presume that you can climb your way to him in your own strength. You gotta tear that down. And then you know what? I hate to tell you this. Later on in your life, and you're still following Jesus, you gotta tear it down again. And then probably the day after you think you torn it down finally, you realize there's still a little ladder there. Maybe one day you successfully tear it down. You know what you do? You don't give up the ladder. You just tuck it behind the shed. Might need that again. It's for all of us. Paul's tearing down the religious false ideology that somebody can be justified in their own human doing. This is the old identity that needs to get torn down. 
Now, now keep going. Look at verse 19 with me because Paul's still building the argument for tearing it all down. Verses 17 through 19 say, but if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too are found to be sinners. Is Christ then a servant of sin? No. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Look at verse 19. For, again, he's building on the argument. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. He's talking about a certain kind of dying that opens up a new way to life. He's talking about putting to death or tearing down our old identity so that we can take hold of a new kind of life. It's turning away from doing something in our own strength so that we might take hold of a new kind of life. Now remember, Paul... Jewish guy talking to his Jewish friend, Peter. This is probably the most Jewish way he could have tried to get across the point he was making. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. And we go, that makes no sense to us. Let's just own that as a group, right? For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I'm like, I get the gist of what he's saying, but I actually get the gist from the context of what's going on. But when he's back to talking to non-Jewish Christians in the Galatian church later on in chapter 5 and 6, he's going to say a couple things that are helpful. So let's look at them. Galatians 5 24, he's going to say this Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's putting to death old passions, old desires. Put it to death that leads to life. Okay, look at what he says in chapter 6, verse 14. He says, But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. He's saying the world's got no claim on me anymore. It's dead. I put it to death. So the world's got no claim on my identity. I don't care what people say about me, he says, as he's meandering around the Roman Empire on the roads, leading from city to city. Because I don't care what they said about me in the last city. All I care is that I'm faithful to God, and I'm going to live out of my new resurrection identity, meaning I crucified the old identity. I'm a transformed person. I don't care what they say. It's got no hold on me anymore. He's using new language from his new identity in Christ. It's only when the old identity is torn down that the new identity can take hold. You hear that? It's only when the old identity is torn down that the new identity can take hold. Now read verse 20 with verse 19, and it helps us even further. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh or in my body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's a glorious text. Like, that's one of the mountaintop texts in the whole Bible. It's one of the pinnacle verses of Scripture. From Genesis to Revelation, Galatians 2.20 is one of those ones. You want to you get that one in your heart. Let me read it again. It's just so good. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's good. A bunch of stoic Vancouverites. This is good. Goodness gracious me. 
This will lift you out of any pit you fall into. Look at this. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ alive in me. And the life I now live by the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That should twist you out of any kind of funk you're in and go, whew, it's not that bad. He says he's been crucified with Christ. He has died to the religious false ideology that he could ladder climb his way to salvation. He has died to self-salvation. Crucified it. Because he's been crucified with Christ. He has died to self-justification. He's putting it behind him. It's not how I live anymore. He has died to self-reliance. He's died to self-sufficiency. He's crucified all of his self-centered ways of living and trying to be good enough to merit the salvation of God. He's put it all behind him. And he's received new life in Christ. That new life's changed everything. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. No longer I who live. Christ who lives in me. It's an issue of identity. Who am I? Look at this in Romans 6. This is the same idea, probably explained better. Verses 3 to 5, Romans 6. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him, In a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. This text is saying that we are united with Christ. The word united is very important for us. It has this idea of being grown together. We are united with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There is a union that has gone on relationally between us and God. We are united with Christ. We are grown together with him in his death. And then we are grown together with him in his resurrection. It makes me think of John chapter 15, where you got this metaphor of Jesus as the vine, and we are the branches that come out of the vine. The branches are nourished by the vine that has roots that go down into the soil, but the branches are united to the vine. This is what Jesus said in John 15, verse 5. He said, I am the vine. Thank God. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. So we're united with Christ, where the fruitfulness of our life actually comes from the nourishment we receive because we're united with the vine. It's a picture of our union with him. It's abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ is walking in the fullness of your knowledge of your union with him. So in my union with Christ, all he has is mine. So because I placed my faith in Jesus, my trust in the faithfulness of Jesus to justify me before God. 
The justification is that entry point into union with Christ. All he has is mine. It's been given to me. It's a gift. All he earned, credited to my account. Gives me a right standing before God. So when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose and I can receive newness of life. That resurrection life of Christ is at work in me by the Spirit. It's at work in you. You who follow Jesus are united to God. It is at work in you to transform you into who you really are. See, walking with Jesus is just becoming more of who you really are. It's becoming more of who you already are. You've been justified by faith in Christ. You've been declared righteous before him. That is the entry point to a relationship or a union with Christ. And so now you're living out the rest of your days being transformed into more of who you already are. And then you die and it only gets better. What do we fear? It says that Christ now sits the right hand of the Father. It says that I am seated with him in the heavenly places. It's because of this living union with Christ, I have a totally new identity. And that's what Paul's saying. Paul's illustration in this text is death to sin and new life to Christ. His illustration is baptism. It's an outward symbol of that inward thing that's gone on in us. It says in Romans 6, verse 6 and 7, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. We're free. We're no longer slaves to sin. And you know what we think about when we think about sin most often, especially us who live in Vancouver, all of you who are nice and shiny and polished and everything's great in your life and you've never had a bad day, right? All of you, all of you, all of us, we, we hear that we've been set free from sin. We're like, oh, thankfully, because I've done some stuff. Here's what else you've been set free from. The slavery to think that you need to earn your way to God. It's what my man Tim Keller calls damnable good works. Not good works that you've done in faith as a sign of your justification. Works that you've done with the motivation to earn a right standing before God. Oh, we're set free from that. Look, you can just feel the weight come off your shoulders when you're told that you're free from having to earn a right standing before God, and that in your union with Christ, you receive everything he's done for you. So let that sit in for a minute. Like, that should just fill us. See, our identity in Christ says we're free. It's actually, he's not suggesting that those who are followers of Jesus have an option to, well, you can receive the freedom if you want. He's declaring it over you. You are free. It's a statement he's making that tells us something that because of the gospel is objectively true. But here's the thing, just because it's objectively true doesn't mean we always feel it, right? That's the tension. That's the struggle. What Paul's saying is in Christ, you are changed. You are free. That status change that has already occurred, it's true. You're free. But our sense of that freedom is still catching up. We don't always feel it. So you're justified. You're not condemned. You're declared not guilty. 
doesn't mean you always feel that way. Paul's calling us to live in light of the new identity we have in Christ. Listen, Paul's calling us to tear down the old identity and to let the new identity take hold. You're free. Believe it. Remember it. Live out of it. Don't let the old way creep back in. Don't forget who you are in Christ. Because when our identity gets forgotten or it gets confused, we, we fall into old patterns. We fall back into sin. We, we either try to climb the ladder or we try to find our comfort elsewhere. But look at verse 6. It says that we know that our old self was crucified. Do you know where the actions in your life come from? The actions that you live by, they come, on, they come out of and are based upon what you believe. And so here it says we know that our old self crucified. So we need to work that into our head and our heart so that we actually act and live out of our new identity. That's what the whole text is about. I, I don't want to disappoint anybody, but it's going to take your whole life to figure this out. And part of the problem of why it takes us so long to figure out is we actually think we're not that bad. And so we go, well, my old identity, yeah, yeah, that was years ago. 20 years ago, I was pretty bad. Eh, 20 minutes ago, I was pretty good. Yeah, it was pretty good. And then you're like, shoot. That's what he's talking about. I think I'm good enough. Oh. But when you're walking in the freedom of receiving what Christ has done in your place, it's not like that. So why is it so difficult? To live out of what we know, 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. How do you live out of that newness? It's what it says in Romans 4, or 6 verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, it says we might walk, we too might walk in newness of life. We are a new creation. The old's gone, the new's come. So why is it so difficult? Why are we tempted to turn back to sin or to ladder climb or whatever your thing might be in our old identity. Why? Part of it, I think, comes from the fact that we just didn't expect the transformation of our life in Christ to cost us so much. We, we wanted to be saved. We didn't, we didn't want to live our lives and our eternity apart from Christ. So, so we gave him our life. And we trust him for eternal salvation. We don't want to die. But really what we were probably looking for, most of us, is just some semblance of peace. Like if I could just get a little bit of the gospel, not the whole package, just a little bit. And some of us come to faith in that way. We come to Jesus with very small expectations of what he's going to do in our life. And, and we don't count the cost. And so we never expect that it would be so difficult because we thought so very little about what the transformation of living as a disciple of Christ might look like. One of the best quotes from one of the best books by one of the best authors of all time helps us to understand this. C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity, he said, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. 
He was getting the drains right, stopping the leaks in the roof, and so on. You knew that those were jobs needed doing, those jobs needed doing, so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting in an extra floor here, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. But he's building a palace. And he intends to come and live in it himself. So why is it so difficult? Well, because on a fundamental level, our entire nature and identity is being recalibrated. And that's not comfortable. In his gracious love, God strips us of the idols that are suffocating us. He removes things that we love that are actually killing us. And he shows us new life in Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. None of this is possible if you don't see that ultimately you've been loved by Jesus. He gave himself for you. Right, the primary ordering principles of Christianity, the center of the whole thing, the very center that all of the other things revolve around is that you, as you, not the person next to you, not your sweet old granny who really loved Jesus more than you, you're, you're trying to figure it out. You have been loved by Jesus and he gave his life for you. It's the center. Everything else goes around. It's all peripheral. Everything else is peripheral. You know, my, my spouse is peripheral, 100%. Don't put her at the middle. Don't put him at the middle. He's not strong enough to bear the weight of that responsibility. Put Christ there. He loved you and gave himself for you. If this doesn't matter, <laughs> nothing matters. Would you stand as we respond in worship?